in John chapter 17 today, continuing our series in the High Priestly Prayer. This is the word of the Lord, the inspired word of God. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we acknowledge that your word is inspired and it points us to Jesus. And we need your spirit to open up our heart and our minds. And we acknowledge that you make known to us the path of life. Would you show us the way today? We know and acknowledge that it is in your presence that there is fullness of joy. Would we taste of that joy today? And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, may we delight in you. Help me to be a help to my brothers and sisters today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It came to my attention this week that there's joy in the middle. There's joy in the middle. I hadn't seen it, but right there, right in the middle, is joy. And I wonder if it's the same for you. I wonder if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, there's joy right there in the middle. Now, before I go too far into this, I should set a bit of a foundation. I should explain something about the text that we are reading today, something about the way such texts were written and how they work, something about the way the, the people who wrote these texts thought, something about their way of communication. Now our text today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. It's the high priestly prayer, and it's important for us to note that this was written 2,000 years ago, and it was likely written from Ephesus by John, and the story that is recounted, the prayer that is here is recounted, this takes place in Israel, and it takes place in Jerusalem, some 7,417 miles away from our church. It's written by a Jewish man. It's written about another Jewish man named Jesus. And 
happened to take place in the Jewish culture. That's important for us in order to understand what's happening. See, texts have contexts, right? Stories have a social matrix in which they live and move and breathe. And here's one way in which these facts matter. In general, in Western thought, when we tell stories, when we try to communicate ideas, we generally do so in a linear fashion. So for instance, uh, A and then B, therefore C. I really want you to understand this point, point C, right? We kind of do things in that fashion, very linear flow in general. In general, though, in Jewish thought, how the scriptures are written, the crucial bit, the main thing is there in the middle. The meaning is in the middle. Storytelling, structures of mind, thought processes are more like A, B, C, B, A. So it has this kind of arc to it. The meaning is there in the middle, right? It all fits together kind of like a stone arch. This, this, by the way, is called chiastic structure or ring composition. Chiastic because the letter uh, chi in Greek is X, so the tension is held there in the middle holding it all together. And ring composition, it, it forms an arc where there's parallels on both sides. So I hope this helps you. Uh, envision an arc. Here, here, we'll put up an archway. And, and why is this thing standing? Why is it not a pile of rubble? Well, it's standing because there's tension holding this thing together. And the keystone right in the middle there, that keystone holds the tension. It exerts force down on both sides, and the sides push up on that as well, and the whole thing stands together. Now, if that keystone is removed, right, the tension is gone, and the whole thing falls apart. And then on each side, you have units. You have stones that match all the way up. They, they echo each other. They're, they're parallel. This kind of structure in a story or in communicating a thought, so cool. It brings cohesion and resonance to a story. It links up the beginning and the end. So by the time you get to the end, it's like coming to a home that you've never known. It feels familiar, but it's new territory and there's great resolve. And so there's a beautiful structure at play in the scriptures. Over and over and over again, we find the meaning in the middle. A quick example of this, don't have time to do too many of them. But a quick example of this is the first five books of the Old Testament. It's called the Torah. So help me out here. Uh, first book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We got five, right? These five work in a, in a chiastic way. So Genesis, God creates a place for his people, puts his people there so he could dwell with them and they can enjoy one another, but it falls apart. What's next? Exodus, right? We have slavery and, and sin and then wandering in the wilderness. And then we get to the middle, right? Leviticus. We'll come back to that here in a second. And then you move away from Leviticus back to wandering in the desert and still, still dealing with some sin. And then book five, Deuteronomy, heading into the promised land, God preparing a people and a place so that he could dwell with them and they can enjoy one another. So you can see that Genesis and Deuteronomy work together, Exodus and Numbers work together, and in the center, Leviticus. What's in the center of Leviticus, chapter 16? Anybody know off the top of their head what's going on in chapter 16? The Day of Atonement. Where the priest goes in, the blood is spilled, the prayers are offered up, a sacrifice is made. 
So there's this union between heaven and earth at great cost, and a high priest is right in the middle of it. What's the point? It all points to Jesus. So you can just look at your hand and, and think of the Torah and middle portion. It all points to Jesus. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. And the reason why I tell you this isn't to go into some kind of seminary lecture. It's just to help us to read the Bible well. And this all came together this week in a new way because there's joy in the middle of the high priestly prayer. There is joy quite literally in the middle. There are 26 verses, about 26 thought units in this whole prayer. And right smack in the middle of this thing, we find verse 13. There's joy in the middle. This is what it says. But now I am coming to you, speaking to the Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they, his apprentices, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. See, Jesus is speaking to his Father, and he's revealing to his apprentices the deep motive the ultimate reason for what he's been teaching and for why he's now praying and what is this deep reason it's that they would have his joy within them fulfilled in them come to maturity overflowing out of them and this friends gets to the very heart of our christian faith what's all this about what's what's the deep meaning and the reason of the Christian faith? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What's at the very heart of it? There's joy. There's joy in the middle of it. At the very center of our faith is delight in God for who he is and entering into his eternal, perpetual, and forever delight. Our faith, the way of Jesus, there's joy. There's joy in the middle of it. That's why it's it's such a shame and it's so broken when people think of Christianity as, as, as dour and, and glum. Like, like we've all been sucking on lemons. Like that's what we do as Christians. We go to church and, and we get real sad about things. It's the opposite. We acknowledge the sadness. We acknowledge the sorrow. But at the very beating heart of who we are and what Christianity is, is joy. This explosive joy with this glorious fallout. See, God is the most joyful being in the universe, the most joyful being in existence. And because of the Father's love and because of the Son's ministry and work, because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we are drawn into the middle of his love and joy. And John, by the way, is captivated by this truth. Multiple times he talks about entering into Jesus' joy. So John, chapter 15, verse 11, for instance, these are the words of Jesus. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and then your joy may be full. He goes on in chapter 16, verse 24, to hit on it again. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. And then here's a curious thing, in the letters that John writes, not the gospel, but the three letters that John writes later. We see this theme of joy arising right on the front end of each one. First John chapter 1, verse 4, he says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. His joy in the joy of the saints because they are in the joy of the Lord. Second John chapter 1, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 
That truth is the word of God. And then 3 John 1, 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Joy is constantly linked up to being like Christ because his spirit is in us and now we're drawn into this incredible life of love in God. It's a curious thing, like the fourth verse of each of those letters is about joy found in union with Jesus. The point, Jesus draws us into joy and he fills us with his joy. So with that, as we explore our key text today in John 17, we will see that there's joy in the middle of a number of things. And so let's work through it now, knowing uh, that Jesus has calibrated our sight to this theme of joy. So chapter 17, verse 11 and 12 says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. We'll stop right there for a moment. So remember, by the way, that this prayer rises out of a specific story, a specific series of events, a specific time and place. Jesus has just been in the upper room. He got down on his knees and, and wiped the feet of his disciples. He taught them incredible divine truths. And they shared the Passover meal together. They, they ate great food and broke bread and drank some great Merlot. And now they're on the move. They're heading to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's night. But what night is it? Well, it's night of the Passover, yes. But he's on his way to the garden where he will be arrested because currently he is being betrayed by a friend. This is the night before his crucifixion. So imagine this. As he takes steps towards the cross, he's thinking about the joy of his apprentices and enjoying communion with his father. That's the context. And he says this. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you. Jesus is about to leave his apprentices. He's about to dive into death. And he's going to leave the world in the way that they know him to be in the world. And so what he's doing is, in love, he's saying, I know they're going to fear. I know they're going to grieve. I, I know they're going to be confused. Father, would you protect them? Would you keep them? Would you guard them? They're going to need your help. So hold them in the faith. He says, protect them in, in the name, the name that you've given me. What does that mean? Well, it means to keep them in the faith, keep them trusting in Jesus as their Savior, even though he happens to be out of their sight right now. Keep them trusting in you as a good father. Then he gives a reason. He says, for their unity. Now, this is fascinating. I, I think we, we know this. The world is constantly trying to tear apart what God has put together. Satan likes to rip apart the, the order that God has put into the world. And so to be a follower of, of Jesus means to be united with Jesus by his spirit and united to the Father, and therefore we're united to other believers because the same spirit is within us. There is a deep unity of being when you are a Christian. And our unity with our brothers and sisters, our love for one another, shows our unity 
with our Father. Our unity shows that our deep joy is found in God, that our joy isn't found in some affinity group, some tribe, some preference club, some political party which we keep putting at, at the main spot. See, there's joy in the middle of unity. Joy, delight in God is what holds Christian unity together at the deepest core. The deepest and truest unity is found in delighting in this God. And if there's division among a church body, you better do a joy audit to figure out what's going on. What's the source of joy? What are we delighting in? What are we trusting in? If it's Christ, then there is unity in the bond of the Spirit. There's still differences, but there's unity in Him. But if there's something else that's deeper that we are delighting in, at some level we're going to part ways, we're going to dissolve into identity groups. And when we're with that that identity group long enough, we're going to dissolve and fracture into another identity group because that's how the dynamics work. You partner with somebody at an affinity level, and then you hang out with them long enough, we're the same tribe, We're, we're on the same page. And about 10 or 15 weeks in, you realize, wait a minute, we differ at this deeper level. And then that fracture becomes five fractures. And then those five fractures become 20 fractures. It's it's exponential. And we live in a world that is constantly fracturing because we don't have a deep unity and delighting in the God who is our very creator. And so there will be divisions when our delight isn't in him. Now that said, uh, verse 12 holds something very troubling, I think. Maybe you saw it, maybe you registered it when I read it. Here's what it says. It says, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. Except that guy, the son of destruction, and <laughs> that the scripture might be fulfilled. What do you do with that? So, uh, what this is not, this is not Jesus confessing that he has failed. What this is, is scripture being faithfully fulfilled. Who's the son of destruction referring to? Judas. Jesus guarded his apprentices. Jesus is the good shepherd. He will not let those go who are his. Yet it was prophesied that he would be betrayed. In the book of Zechariah chapter 11, it tells that the Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and that money would be cast into the house of God. And that's exactly what happens with Judas. The details are staggering. The prophecy is fulfilled in the most incredible way. But do you know what this means? It means Jesus knew betrayal. Jesus knew betrayal. Jesus was sold. Jesus was commodified. Jesus was trafficked. And don't miss this. While that very betrayal from a friend was happening, in the very middle of that betrayal, Jesus is still enjoying his Father's presence and he's thinking of the joy of his friends amidst all the darkness that surrounds. In the dark night of betrayal, there is joy in the middle. There's joy in the middle of betrayal and unfaithfulness because of communion with our faithful Savior and our forever Father. And I know some of you, because I've heard your stories, I know some of you have been treated in the most cruel and brutal ways when you have been betrayed by that friend or that 
that spouse or that child. And so without minimizing that pain, know that there is joy in the middle if there is communion with this faithful Savior who knows betrayal. As our text goes on, though, there's some unpopular news here in verse 14. Jesus offers us a rough pill to swallow. He says that his apprentices are hated by the world. The world miseos them. This, is, this Greek word here doesn't just mean to uh, not really like all that much. It means to detest. It means to persecute. It means to hate something so much you want to snuff it out. You want to take it down. You want to break it. You want to ruin it. Here's what he says in verse 14. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now question, why, why are they hated? Is it because Christians happen to be jerks or have a low EQ and don't know how to deal with social situations? Is it because they, they get sassy online and, and say really fiery things? Is that why we're going to be hated? Is it because they're arrogant? Why are they going to be hated? Because they are a people of love. Because they are a people of light. Because they are a people of truth. Because they are a people of the word. They are a light in a dark World, They are counter-cultural by their new nature in the Spirit. Jesus knows the conflict between light and darkness. And so he prays that the Father wouldn't remove them from the world, but that he would keep them from the evil one, that their faith would stay intact, that they would stay in communion with him. So he prays that they would remain faithful. Again, not to remove them from the world. Why? Why doesn't he just want to pick them up and remove them from the world? Because the world needs him. And the world needs ambassadors of truth, needs agents of light. The world needs love and grace and mercy, and we are called to be the bearers of those things. So he doesn't just pray for their comfort and ease, make all the problems go away. He's after their holiness. He's after the salvation of the world. And again... Keep in mind, when does this prayer take place? On the eve of his crucifixion, right? Jesus didn't eject. He confronted, he entered into the darkness to bring light, to bring hope, and so too are we. And too often, we can have this evacuation mentality. It's just too hard, just like beam me up, get me out of here, let's, let's get on with it. But God in his grace is extending the timeline and has us in the darkness so the light reaches further into the land of the shadows. That's why we are here. That's why the church is, is in existence, to be light bearers. And if you look in verse 18, we, we see Jesus say this explicit. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
Why did the Father send the Son into the world? I'm sure we could come up with a, a whole list of scriptural reasons, but to seek and to save the lost, to, to bring salvation to this world. Why is he sending us into the world? To seek and to save the lost, to witness to the Father, to witness to the Son by the power of the Spirit. See, he calls us into mission, not to vacation until evacuation. And so amidst the hate, there's joy in the middle. And amidst the darkness, there's joy in the middle. And on mission, amidst all the resistance, there is joy in the middle. And there's joy in the middle of your rough family situation, in the middle of those broken family dynamics that keep rearing their ugly head. There's joy in the middle of a financial downturn. There's joy in the middle of injustice, of national upheaval, of a worldwide pandemic. There's joy in the middle of it all, a joy that strengthens us and motivates us amidst the darkness. We get a glimpse of Jesus' interior motives and, and heart in Hebrews 12 too tells us clearly that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. It was his joy of ushering the world into union with his Father that he so delighted in, and joy of this great reunion that gave him the, the wherewithal to go through what he went through because he knew that those sorrows would not outlast the joy. He knew that the joy didn't have a shelf life. He knew that the sorrows and the darkness was temporal and would fade. He had that right, proper perspective. The joy of the Lord is our strength, the scriptures say at, at many points. And, and it, that doesn't just mean um, every once in a while he just gives us a little zap of strength. It means his joy actually becomes our joy, and now we operate out of this way of being in this world in alignment with this one who is in and of himself joy. And a deep knowing that this, this sorrow, this, joy, this, this suffering is secondary. This doesn't get the last word. Joy outlasts the darkness. It was this joy that had him walk into the abuse and the wicked shaming that was heaped upon him. And, and that same joy is the joy that we have. That joy that was in Jesus while he walked through the darkest of nights. That joy that was in him while he bore unbearable pain. That joy that was in him while he shouldered the greatest of weights. That joy that was in him as he endured the most shocking of shamings is the same joy that can live within us through our darkest of nights, through our unbearable pains, through shouldering all the weight that we will shoulder in this world and endure the shocking shaming that we will endure if we are followers of Jesus in a broken world. Now how is this the case? How is this the case? How can there be joy in the middle? How can there be joy in the middle of these things? How do you get this joy, joy, joy down deep in your soul? I know some of you have been wanting to sing that for a while, so there you go. So two things from our text. The first is this. We must be washed, sanctified, transformed in and by the truth of reality of who God is. 
The gospel is the power of God unto salvation that changes us and forms us. And, and in our text here in verse 19, Jesus says, For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Translation, for their sake I dedicate myself to going down this road, to going to the cross, to entering into death, that they might have salvation. But then he says that they also may be sanctified, that's cleansed, that they would be changed, transformed, renewed in the truth. And what's the truth? The truth is his word, who he is, what he's done. The good, glad news of Jesus, the truth of who he is and what he's done transforms us. It renews our mind, it reshapes our imagination, it helps us to re-see the world, alters our affections, and then has us inhabit this world in a different way. And so we need to be letting this truth shape us. But there's a thousand different narratives out there that we are imbibing, we are eating, we are drinking daily, and they are coming uh, from toxic sources, and they are toxic stories. And we, we, we drink them down, and we eat them, and we wonder why our, our, our being is loaded with toxicity. So we need to turn our eyes to what is good and what is beautiful and true. We need to eat the, the feast of, of the nourishing word of God. We, we need to taste the honey of his word and let it shape us. And, and, and what I mean by this, I, you guys know this, it's not just merely memorizing a verse or two. It's entering into and inhabiting the story of the scriptures and letting the narratives reshape how we engage this world. We are to be in the word of God, to be being washed and renewed by the spirit of God through his word. There's joy in the middle of scripture meditation. Joy is cultivated as we meditate on the truth of who God is and experience his love through his word. The other thing is this, and let's circle back around to where we began. There's joy in the middle, right there in the middle of the prayer. And again, what is Jesus doing in John 17? Why doesn't he pray this alone without anybody hearing him? Because he's modeling for everyone what this communion with his Father is like. Jesus is showing us how one can have joy and how one cultivates joy amidst the stormiest and darkest of circumstances. On that note, do you know why there is a, an eye of calm in the middle of a storm. Think of a hurricane, right? Spinning off, off the coast, coming and, and hitting land. <clears throat> Why is there calm in the middle of that? There's reports of people who've been in the middle of those storms where they're, they're saying it was all chaos and all violence and all of a sudden, in a split second, the sky cleared. It was blue. The clouds evaporated. The rain stopped and there was a strange sense of stillness and peace. Why? Well, some of you could probably explain this to me better because you're, you're weather nerds, you're scientists, you, you know better, but, but essentially what's happening in the swirling of the storm is that air around the center, air is going up and it's kicking out and it's curving and it's coming back in as this, this feedback loop that's getting bigger and more destructive over and over and over again. So the air is going up, out, and coming back in. But in the center of that storm, it's, it's reversed. Warm air is coming down from above, evaporating the clouds, drying up the rain, and creating a still spot right in the middle, middle of the mess, right at the center 
of the violence. And so it is with God. In our union with him, in communion with him, we enter into the joy that is at the very center of existence, that will outlast all the violent winds, that will outlast the flooding rains, that will outlast the trees being torn up and the houses being destroyed. That center is the place of peace and of joy which is thicker and truer and more substantial than any of the pain that's around. Now that doesn't mean that the pain isn't painful and that the, the, the tears aren't salty, of, of course. But this is the realism at the heart of Christianity. We can acknowledge all the hell that's going on and acknowledge that heaven has poured into the very center and there can be joy that is amidst and in the middle of the sorrows. There will be a day when the sorrows expire, but the joy is eternal. So how do we cultivate this joy? We can't white-knuckle it. If you've ever tried to white-knuckle joy, it just, doesn't, it just doesn't work. How do we cultivate it? Again, through being in God's Word, letting the truth reshape our minds, but through unceasing prayer in which we commune with a good and a happy God. There's a joy in the middle of unceasing prayer. Paul in Philippians, he tells us he anxious for, for nothing, right? But in everything by prayer and supplication. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known. In other words, enter into this communion with this God who is this fount of joy. And let that reframe everything. See, we ought to be living like God has been telling the truth because he has been telling the truth. Set aside all those anxious things. Be being in communion with the joyful one who holds you, who keeps you, who has your flourishing all mapped out. You need not be anxious about anything for there can be joy in the middle of everything. And, and some of us are wondering, well, why have I felt so gray? Why has my soul felt so anemic? Why do I feel this spiritual lethargy? Some of us have been wondering why we feel so depressed or rattled by anxiety or so negative in our thought patterns. And might, might it be that you are not attending to communion with the joyful one. I'm not saying there, there aren't issues chemically or physically with, with food and nourishment and sleep. I'm not saying any of that. But the core posture of our soul is shaped by our relationship with his creator. You guys, you guys have, have experienced this, I'm sure. Emotional fields. Uh, people bring with them emotional fields, postures of being, right? There's certain people you know when they walk in the room, it gets chilly, right? You, you, uh, you're in a meeting with someone and somebody comes in and you can tell in a moment they hate their job, they don't want to be there, they don't think they need to be in the meeting, right? You can feel it or, or vice versa, now, there's some of you, I just love being in a, in a room with you. And it's not just because you're all, all bubbly and talk high pitch or whatever, but like you, you just have this joy. And it's infectious. And I leave from being with you being like, yeah, Jesus is king. Let's go. Now, there's just this, 
this joy and this energy. And there's these emotional fields that affect us. It is just interpersonal neurobiology. People's posture in life and their communication and our interaction with them shapes and shifts and changes how we experience this world. I tell you all that to say, what if you could commune with the most joyful being in existence who is a fountain of, of life and vitality. You spend time with that being, the power and depth of who they are will make you shine as you walk in this world. You will radiate that love and that life. You want joy. Don't try to white-knuckle it. Cultivate it in relationship with this God. Commune with this one who is the center of joy. It came to my attention this week that there's joy in the middle, in the middle of the struggles that I have been wrestling with personally. There's joy right there in the middle of them, and I hadn't been seeing it. I, some of you know this about me because we work together or we're friends, um, but I, I have a tendency to slip into the melancholy. I have a tendency to have micro-depressions. Anybody in, in here ever have micro Thank you. Yeah, like, it's so bizarre. Like, the sun's shining, right? And things are going great relationally, and it's like a great day, and then all of a sudden, you're like, you're like, boom, pig pen, and like, there's a cloud over your head, and just like, there's dust around, and you can't see out, and it's so frustrating, because you're like, why is my soul in this shape right now? But there's a pattern that I've been noticing and, and picking up on as I've done this excavating work of my own soul and reflection. And a piece of it, it comes from, uh, for about two years, I was dealing with some, some chronic nerve, nerve pain in my back. I mentioned this at, at one point, doing much better. But for about a year and a half, it was hard to walk. It was hard to get off the floor. And it was like level 10 nerve pain. Neurosurgeons, the whole deal, everyone was involved. But the weirdest thing happened. Like, to get through those days, and who are my chronic pain people in here? I know there's some of you in here. To get through those days, it's like you got to pray. You have to pray because you're not getting through it if you're not praying. But the strangest thing happens in the middle of that storm and that, that unceasing prayer is this joy, this strange paradoxical joy creeps in because you are communing with this God who is the joyful one in the midst of everything that's going on. And so this gift of joy kept rising in the middle of this pain. And then I kept looking at my other patterns and going, so often when I sink back into those doldrums and I go back into those, those points of melancholy, it's because my communion with the joyful one has actually been broken or distracted. Something's taken its place or I've stepped back. Again, not to minimize medications and chemicals and food and, and, and sunshine and all these other things. Let's be honest. The posture of our soul has everything to do with our relationship with God. And if we are not in communion with Him, that is going to affect us. There is a strong link between prayerlessness and joylessness. So I wonder if it's the same for you, and maybe you haven't seen it. Maybe you haven't seen that there's joy in the middle of your circumstances. In the middle of that family feud that you're in, in the middle of that broken relationship, in the middle of the diagnosis that's just landed this 
week. In the middle of your depression or the rattle of the anxiety that just keeps coming back. Or in your work trouble. Wondering what you're going to do next. Wondering where the bills or how the bills are going to be paid. Wondering where the money is going to come from. There is joy in the middle of all of these things. But not a hollow, chintzy, cheap, fake smile kind of joy. But a deep joy that knows that the joy and the peace is eternal. And these circumstances, there's a time limit to them. So my friends, Jesus has prayed for you to be a person of joy. May it be so. Get into prayer. Get into the joy at the very middle of it all. Father, we love you. We need you. I just, again, I think of Psalm 16 that you lead us into the paths of life. You show us the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's you, Jesus. You show us the way. You are the way. You are the path. In your presence, we are ushered into joy. In you, we can delight in God. We thank you for that. We love you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.